So over the next seven weeks, I'm going to try something a little different than I've done in the past. Normally, I preach uh, expositionally, which means I take a passage of Scripture and draw the meaning out of the passage, and that's the meaning of the sermon. This, over the next seven weeks, we'll be looking more topically at, at Scripture, but the topic that is within the Scripture, and then try to look at a cross-section of Bible verses to try to understand it. And we're going to use this method. I don't do it very often, but it can be helpful in the short run for the study of the seven deadly sins. Now, the seven deadly sins, if you're a reader, you probably have come across that phrase in the Canterbury Tales or Dante's Inferno or perhaps even in some of C.S. Lewis' writings. If you're not a reader, uh, perhaps you've seen it. Uh, MTV had a series on the seven deadly sins where... They interviewed entertainers from the radio and the television and music industry uh, to speak to them about the nature of the seven seven deadly sins. Or perhaps you saw that movie, I think it was back in the late 90s, kind of a dark movie, but seven with uh, Morgan Freeman and I think Brad Pitt. And and the murders were all associated with these seven deadly sins. Um, Well, you know, we understand the expression in this day. I, I want you to recognize that it came actually from the 4th century. In the early church, they began putting lists together of sins, and there was a list of eight put together in the 4th century. The seven deadly sins came to be uh, known as such in the 6th century with Pope Gregory the Great. Uh, but, but here's what they are, and they're key sins in our life. They are uh, the sin of, of pride, of um, envy. It's the sin of anger, of greed, Sloth, gluttony, and then lust. Now, it's, you know, I know in today's world to talk about sin so boldly is, is a way to create extra spaces in the church. Um, and and it, it, it makes us feel uncomfortable because we do think it's like a hangover from the Middle Ages. Uh, others, I think, of you may come from backgrounds where that was all that was preached. Sin's in sin. And, and you know, the church has, I'm sympathetic to the fact that the church is often been better at producing guilt than relieving guilt through the gospel. But over the years I've seen, and I think you'll testify that are are kind of failing to speak about issues that we struggle with, every one of us, uh, has not really helped us out in our marriages and our communities and our church. It's only exacerbated many of our problems. And so we're going to look at these seven deadly sins over these seven weeks. Now, they're called deadly sins. I don't want to imply that other sins aren't deadly. You could say to me, well, isn't murder a little more, isn't it deadlier, shall we say, than gluttony? And uh, I would say absolutely, at least in the short run. Um, but, but the reason they're called seven deadly sins, in fact, one, one author said it this way, sin has a thousand faces, but these are some of the most famous. And they're also the most dangerous. And the reason that we would look at these seven is because they seem to be the source of sin. They're called capital sins, which means head or source. And so, and so these give birth to sins. And the reason is because they really speak to the disposition of your heart. They're, as, one, as one guy said, they're kind of heart-shaping sins. They, they get in the fabric of our life. It's not an action taken out of anger, per se, but, but they're pattern-making sins. And so we're going to look at these. Now, when I speak about the nature of sin, many of you may quickly want to define sin as what's well, something you do or something you haven't done, kind of these external acts or failure to act. 
I don't look at sin that way. I'm looking at sin a bit deeper at the heart level. It was Augustine in the fourth century who said that, that sin is a disordered love. I'm loving something I shouldn't, or I'm loving it in a way that doesn't, the object doesn't warrant that kind of love. Or John Owen in the 17th century, that sin is our attempts to seek happiness apart from God. Uh, so, so the idea here is every one of us wants to be happy. We want to be secure. We want to have meaning. We want to have purpose to life. Uh, we want to matter. And those things are all fine. But what natural men and women do is we go to the things of this world, whether it be money or position or power or prestige or relationships, and we try to find in those things meaning and purpose and value. And, and, and what we're saying here is that's a deadly way to live. And here's why, because it can't satisfy you. You have been made in the image of God, and so having a new car is a great thing, but it rusts. You know, having a new home or a bigger home, it's a lovely thing, but it gets old and it needs to be repaired. That you have been built for something more. You've been built for a happiness that nothing on this earth can truly satisfy. And so God in his mercy is the one that will satisfy. And when we pursue happiness and meaning and value apart from God, with whom is all pleasure at his right hand, then we move down a deadly path. So, so what I want to do over these seven weeks is look at each one of these sins and try to understand how it manifests itself in our life. That way we can identify it. And then we want to look at the nature of the sin. What is it at its base? And then, and then what we want to do is look at how to kill it, we, how to mortify it. That's an old word for putting it to death. How do we dislodge it? How do we remove it from our lives and begin to make war with it? But here I want you to know that my goal is not simply in the elimination of something, but in the cultivation of something. I want us to have a growing, ravishing joy over God and not these false little God substitutes that are kind of flirting with us to try to gain our attention. One author said it this way. He said, our love affairs with sin are not just a matter of morality. So if you think that's what sin is, I, I would say you have a superficial understanding. He says, our love affairs with sin are not just a matter of morality, but of joy. It's not just about faithfulness to God. It's about finding our deepest, most satisfying fulfillment in God. And many people think that following Jesus means surrendering our happiness. That you can either enjoy a fun and passionate, exciting life here and now for a short time, or live a bland, boring life, but safe with God forever. Now this, is, this lie is quiet but violent concentration camp. It's fencing men and women in, keeping them away from God, torturing them with lesser pleasures that only lead to swift and yet never-ending death. So that's what these, these kind of flirting little sins have in our life, and we want to begin to put them to death. So we're going to start with, with pride. Okay, so pride, I think you know. Now, speaking about someone being proud, it has experienced a recent makeover. So it used to be a vice to avoid, but now it's a virtue to gain. I mean, pride is big. Pride is good. We want to have, we want, you know, parents are proud of their children who are on the honor roll. And, and we want our kids to be self-assertive. We want them to be confident. We're proud of many things. We're, we have Southern pride. We've got gay pride. We've got black pride. We are proud on many different levels. I mean, everybody's getting a trophy in this world. 
right now. We want people to have, you know, the sin of the age is low self-esteem. That's the sin of the age. But, but I want you to understand that some degree of, of happiness and, and hard working, that's all fine and good. But at the core of pride is I'm trying to find value, worth, happiness through the things of God and not through God. And this gives birth to many sins. This idea of me trying to find meaning in life gives birth to sins. C.S. Lewis, and I'll have a few quotes from him because he speaks a lot about it. He says, um, oh boy, I did this last time. You know, I, last sermon, I forgot this little piece of paper, and so I was trying to walk out what humility looks like in front of a lot of people when you go to look for a quote. C.S. Lewis speaks about it being the mother of all sins, and the reason is this, because if you are a proud person, you are giving way to envy. Why? Because proud people think that they deserve what everybody else has, and so it leads to envy. Pride gives birth to, to greed. Why? Well, because I'm stuck on myself. I have superiority. I believe I deserve more and more and more. Pride gives birth to anger. Why? Because I feel superior to everybody else and I can look down on them with scorn. Pride gives birth to sloth because I shouldn't have to work as hard as everybody else. Pride gives birth to gluttony. It's, I mean, I deserve to have exquisite food and as much as I want of it. Pride gives birth to lust because I feel so good about myself that I can justify me using another person for my sexual pleasures. So pride gives birth to all these other six sins. So we want to be mindful of it. It is deadly. Now, what I want to do first, though, is after I've explained it to you, I want to find with you where it exists in your life. Where does pride exist? Well, you see, of course, in our story that was read of the Pharisee, the Pharisee was marked with pride. He walks into the temple, right? He walks right up front to the temple. He's not in fear of God. He feels very confident before God. And he stands up and he begins to pray. He prays out loud. And what he begins to pray is he tells God. He brings out that laundry list. Look at all the things I haven't done. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a tax collector. I'm not a murderer. He's telling God all the things he is not. And then he begins to pray out all the things that he does. He gives a, you know, he fasts twice a week. Do you realize that's a hundred times more than the law required? The law required one time of fasting per year on the day of Yom Kippur. Yet he's doing it twice a week, a hundred times more. He tithes everything he gets. Now, in the other versions or the other gospels, he tithes his mint and cumin. Not all the crops that you grow were required to be tithed, but he even tithes his herbal garden. So, I mean, he's standing before God, sharing all that he is. It, there is this, this idea, he looks around, I'm not like the tax collector. He begins to scorn and look down on other people. So you see this arrogance that this man, who could look, by the way, we're looking at him under a microscope, but you know, you might look at him and say he's really a nice guy. I mean, he's not, he'd be a good neighbor, he'd be a good husband, he's not cheating on his wife, he's not running around on her. He's not cheating on his taxes. He's obeying the government. So from all external markers, he looks like a very good man. You'd want him as a neighbor. And yet here inside, there's all the pride breeding. 
And so let's look at him as a model. For example, you see the pride of self-righteousness. You see the sense that he feels right before God. That's what righteous means. I am in a right standing with God. I, God and I were okay. Look at all the things that I haven't done, God. Look at all. So he's resting in what he has not. He's resting what he has not done, and he's resting in what he has done. Now, this is very natural to us because if you were to ask a person. If you were to die and you were to stand before God and God would say, why should I let you into heaven? What will people normally do? They'll turn to what they haven't done. I haven't killed anybody. I'm a pretty good person. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't raped anybody. I don't cheat on my taxes. Or maybe they'll turn to things that they do. I go to church. I have a ministry. I give money. I care for the poor. And, and, and there is a self-righteousness because your righteousness is resting on yourself and what you've done. This is very dangerous. This is what we call the sin of the religious. The religious are most prone to this sin because, you know, you're hanging around moral people. You're acting in moral ways. Many of you have seen your life reformed. You've come out from maybe some dark corners of life. And and so you begin, I am different. I am better than the drunk on the street. I am better than the prostitute on the corner. And you begin to rest in a righteousness that you've produced. This is C.S. Lewis takes aim at the religious when he says, according to Christian teachers, the essential, sorry, sorry, went ahead, prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. The proud, the avaricious, the self-righteous, they are in that danger because we feel so right with God. Do Do you feel this way? I mean, when you think about your rightness before God, Are you looking to the righteousness of Christ or are you looking to the change that has come about in your life over the years? So that's one mark. If you can look at other people and begin to feel good about your rightness, there's a warning for that. Okay, the second evidence that pride may be existing in you is kind of a self-exaltation. Let's call this the Tower of Babel sin where you're kind of lifting yourself up above others. You begin to look down on others. You see it in the Pharisee. He's looking down at the tax collector. He even points him out. He said, thank God, I'm not like... It's so deceptive because he's thanking God, which gives us a sense of spirituality, but he's thanking God that he's not like these other people. And he begins to, you know, kind of peg off those types of people that he's better than. You know, this this kind of self-exaltation needs other people to climb over to feel good about themselves. You kind of see it in your heart when you begin to, to listen a little closer to people when they speak nicely of you. And you begin to kind of roll their, you know, what they've said about you, you roll it over in your mind because it kind of lifts you above the others. It, kind of, it gives you this sense of, you know, you can see it in the inverse when someone criticizes you, you quickly defend, you quickly excuse, you quickly explain how, well, it was a bad turn of events or I didn't have things going my way. But, but you know, you, you love the praise of others because it kind of lifts you up a little bit. That would be a mark of, that would be a mark of pride, of, of kind of seeing yourself above others or you want to be above others. That would be the same. 
Or thirdly, you know, another evidence of pride would be self-promotion. This is kind of an easier one, you know. It, you kind of see it in a person's strut. You know, they kind of walk. It's like a red tie day. They're power people. And they walk in a room and they kind of strut in and they kind of act as if they're kind of boastful. Or you see it in conversations, perhaps yourself. When you begin, you get in a conversation and... Uh, and you've seen it when a person will take the conversation and move it to themselves. And, and, and they'll speak about their experiences in their life. But every time in a conversation, it tends to be dominated by one party. You can always test yourself to see if you've hogged a conversation. What did I learn about that person when you leave the conversation? Did you learn anything? If you didn't learn anything, it's probably because you didn't ask them anything. There's this conversational narcissism that can take place that might evidence a degree of pride. This boastfulness is what Paul was going after with the Corinthian church. Forty-two times in that letter, he talks about their boastfulness. And that boastfulness means kind of swollen, like a windbag. And, and, you know, it's like a blowfish. A blowfish can swell multiple times its size. Now, it does it out of fear, but I think we do it as well. You know, it, it, it distorts itself. It's not really, it, it blows itself up much bigger than it is. That's what we do. We, we promote ourselves in a way that will garner the appreciation or the affirmation or the approval of others so that we can feel good about ourselves. You know, th- that would be evidence of pride. Or self-confidence would be another one. A self-confidence, what I mean by that is when you assess a situation and you determine it to be right, you, you, the way you think, the way you perceive, the way you feel about it is right. When someone says, well, I don't agree with you, th- then you get upset because they're not seeing it the way that you see it. There's a, there's a sense, and you know what I mean by this. You just feel like you're right. You always feel like you're right. You, know, you get in a conversation or a conflict with somebody, and the way they see it is just the right way. And if you don't see it that way, you're, you're either stupid or, or you're wrong or you're both. But, but it's just, it's, you're right. In fact, Henry Farley, a guy that wrote on the seven deadly sins, said this. He says, if there's any glimmering, or he says, any glimmering of what we feel, what we think we feel, or what we feel we feel, or what we say we feel, we count it as genuine form of self-knowledge. This knowledge is accessible, of course, only to each of us individually, but it's thus beyond any challenge by others and may be used to claim the right to do what we want in response to any whim or fancy of the moment. People often talk today of their need to express themselves in some choice of the moment, some action, some word, or some gesture, and this need is then presented as the only justification that is required for their whim. This is the morality of a child. In other words, you you come in and you just, there's no self-suspicion among you. I just, I understand the situation, and let me tell you what the truth is. That's pride, speaking. To not humble yourself and go, well, maybe I didn't think it right. Maybe I didn't feel it right. Maybe I didn't hear it right. You know, th- th- that would evidence humility as opposed to, no, this is the way it is. And you just gotta, you got to get in line with it. So those are some of the more obvious ones. But let me give you one more example of pride. This is kind of the dark underbelly of the thing. And it's self-pity. Self-pity is the pride of the one who's weak or broken or insufficient. Uh, self-pity is that poor me party. I'm not thin enough. I'm not 
pretty enough. I'm not smart enough. I never measure up enough. I'm never as good as my brother. I'm never as good as this fellow employee. Self-pity is deceiving because it seems so needy, it can't feel like pride. But it is. It's just the inverse. It's the inversion of pride. It's kind of, um, you know, it's a wounded ego. You know, it's not proclaiming that I'm helpless. It's really proclaiming that I'm a hero because I'm enduring with all these failures. Pride just wants to be at the center of good or ill. It doesn't matter which one. So when you hear that list, you know, just the self-righteous, the self-exalting, the self-promotion, the self-confidence, self-pity, do those ring a bell? Because pride is difficult to discern. In a survey done on these seven deadly sins, uh, respondents were asked, which one is most troubling for you? And only 12% said pride. Only 12%. Sin's kind of, it doesn't come to the surface easy. In fact, Jonathan Edwards said it this way. He said, it is the most hidden, it is the most secret and deceitful of all sins. It just kind of lays beneath the surface. The reason I bring this up and the reason we're going through these seven deadly sins and I want to show you the manifestations of them is because they are deadly. And I want to explain to you how deadly they are. They're deadly to yourself. They're deadly to your own, under, your own self-understanding. What do I mean by that? I mean, they leave you empty. They leave you void. They leave you alone. You know, in fact, Timothy Keller, pastor in New York City, says they leave you unstable. Because you're contingent upon what other people think of you. When you live by pride, you live by the thoughts of others. He says it this way. He says, pride is unstable because other people are absentmindedly or intentionally treating your proud ego with less reverence than you think it deserves. You continually find that your feelings are hurt. You're perpetually putting up a front. The self-cultivator spends more energy trying to display the fact that he's happy by posting highlight real Facebook photos and all the rest than he does actually being happy. You know, you're contingent upon everyone. But not only does it, does it hurt you in terms of, of creating a void and alienation from people, uh, but it, it makes you vulnerable to great failure. It, you, know, you know the verse in Proverbs, pride goes before the fall. That's very true. Richard Thaler is a well-known economist who wrote a book called uh, The Winner's Curse. And in this book, he traces out how some of the biggest losses only come after a series of big gains. You see it in the business world where a businessman or businesswoman has one success after another, and they almost think they're invincible, and that is the precursor to the great fall. Or you see it in the gambling industry. The the biggest losses come after a series of wins where the person begins to think they really are a genius at this. And then they have the big collapse at the end. So so be warned that this is a deadly sin. It, It will ultimately work against yourself. But not just yourself. It works against the community. I mean, when you are a proud person and a proud person enters a community, it sows seeds of envy and competition. Uh, it, it, it prevents people from wanting to be vulnerable and wanting to be transparent. Uh, the proud person has a hard time declaring their sins and faults to one another. And so the whole conversation now is going to stay at a superficial level. 
In fact, that's why a lot of these ancient Christians began keeping lists of sins. You see them all over the place. They're really trying to help the community. Why? Because all these sins, you know, envy, greed, sloth, they all work against oneness in our faith. You even see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when Paul writes against the Corinthians regarding the Lord's Supper. Do you know what causes his anger to them? is that the rich were eating all the food and the other Christians who were coming in after a day of work, there was no food left for them. And it was creating a division. There was no unity. Why? Because their gluttony in eating and drinking was creating a division within the church. And that's why he chides them. So it works against this place, our our fellowship, our love for one another. I mean, how am I? I? I am too weak of a person to be able to to be vulnerable to you when you seem to have everything together all the time. And and you're not telling me any of the chinks that you have in your armor. So it works against the community. So that's the manifestation. It's self-righteousness and and self-exaltation, self-promotion, self-confidence, self-pity, and it's going to kill you and it will ultimately kill the unity that we have here. Okay, so what's the essence of it? So moving from the manifestations to the second part here, what's the essence? What's the nature of it? Well, I think you know what the nature of it is by the, by the phrases that I kept using. It's about the self. That's the nature. It's a love for self. It's a preoccupation we have with the self. It's an excessive thoughts that we have over the self. It, it is, as, as one scholar said, the proud man thinks a lot about himself and the proud man thinks a lot of himself. It's both narcissism and conceit put together in the same box. But why are we so in love with ourselves? Why do we love ourselves so? Why are we so deeply committed to ourselves, even over our spouses and our children? Well, we're so deeply committed because we want to be God. You see the beginning of pride in the garden. You see it when the tempter comes to the woman and says, you will be like God. He could have easily said, you will be God instead of God. This is why C.S. Lewis calls pride the, the anti-God state. It's, it is wanting to usurp the sovereign authority of God. I want to be my own king. I want to make my own law. I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, and how I want to do it. I don't want people. You want to get a person's back up? Just say you can't do this. You want to get a child and find out what's truly inside the heart of a child? Just try no a few times when they want something. I mean, it comes right out really quickly. We don't want to have authority in our life. And the dangerous thing, besides the fact that nobody here would make a good God, the dangerous thing is is that it keeps you from God. Pride keeps you from God. Uh, Pride stops you from going to him for mercy. Pride stops you from going to him for grace. Pride stops you from going to him for forgiveness. You don't think you need it. You have it all. You, You just don't need it. You won't go to him in prayer. You won't submit to him to follow his word because you know better. This is what pride does. It keeps us from God. That's why, you know, when I talk to people that are not Christian, they say, I just can't believe I say, oh, you can. You really can. In, in the sense that you know, unbelief is not a, it's not a evidential issue. It, it, it's not because there's not enough evidence out there 
to understand that there is a, a great creator. It, it's not an intellectual argument either, in the sense that you, know, you don't have to have a certain IQ to understand it. It is a moral issue. It's not evidential, it's not intellectual, it's moral. You don't want to believe in God, because believing in God means that now there is requirements, there are expectations, there are understandings, there are changes that need to be made in life. So people don't want God. It's a moral issue. Pride. So I was talking to a, a friend once about the faith. And uh, he was just looking at the faith. He wasn't a Christian at the time. And, um, but he believed in God. He had some general deistic view of, yeah, God's created things. And I said, well, have you ever thanked God for your life? And he said, um, he said no. I said, well, did you make yourself get born? I mean, did you choose where you'd be born and when you'd be born and the opportunities that you had? Did you do any of that? Did you determine any of that stuff? He said, no. I said, the gifts that you have, what didn't you receive? I'm sure that you built on things. I have no doubt about it. You're a hard worker. But you built on material that was furnished for you. Right? You didn't bring the raw material to the table. I said, have you ever thanked God for breathing? Have you ever thanked God for your life? You could have been born in Romania in 1382 as a slave of some, some feudal lord that just took advantage of you. I said, have you ever thanked him? He said, no. I said, so he's given you life and breath. and all the, He's given you all these things and you've never thought once to say thank you. I said, that is like the epitome of massive ingratitude. That's pride. Why? Because I did it all myself. You don't need to thank him. So that's the ugliness of pride. But what's worse is that God is opposed to the proud. God will judge the proud. God will bring the proud down. We see this in Isaiah chapter 2.11. He says, The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of man shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that's lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Do you see what he's saying? There is a judgment on the proud. This is why we want to run from it. There is a day, and you can actually see, we see a snapshot of it, a foretaste of it. In Acts chapter 12, if you know the story, Herod has given a speech. Uh, King Herod has given a speech. There's a lot of Herods in the Bible. This is the last one, and you'll see why. But, but he gives a speech, and the people are proclaiming that he has the voice of a God. He must have been giving an unbelievable speech. And here's what it says. It says, on the appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, his, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God, not man. It says, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give the glory. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of the Lord increased and multiplied. If you read in Josephus on the detail of that death, it was bad. He did not give glory to God. That's, what, that's a foretaste of what God will do. God, there is a day of judgment. And that I, want, I don't want to scare us. I just want us to know, hey, there is, a, there is an end to this road. And, uh, and so these sins are deadly. And so we want to kill them. Now, if you're a Christian here, uh, 
you may think, well, no, no, I've been forgiven of my sins. No, the Christian life is a life of battle against sin. In fact, before you're a Christian, you don't really know you're in a battle. It's when you see the preciousness of Christ and you see his death on the cross that you begin to see that you're in a battle. Before you're a Christian, sin and kind of this behavior, it's like fish to water. You don't see it. As long as things are consensual and as long as it's comfortable for people and no one's hurt, hey, it's fair game. But when you become a Christian, you realize, no, I'm in a battle with sin. This is called sanctification, where we make war with that which is tempting us from God. John Owen said it this way. He's a 17th century Puritan in England. He said um, that uh, if you're not killing sin, sin is killing you. There's an ongoing battle that doesn't go away. And so I want to give you some tools. Just I want you to think about how do we put pride to death? So I'm going to give you some examples. How do we put pride to death? How do we kill pride? Well, the first thing you see, of course, is that you humble yourself. And let me return to the story for just a minute. You have this tax collector in the temple. And the tax, unlike the Pharisee, the Pharisee goes right up front. He doesn't. He stays back. Why? Proximity, I guess. He's just worried about getting closer to the Holy of Holies. He doesn't want to get anywhere near that. You know, where the, where the Pharisee is praying out loud, the tax collector is just mumbling to himself. where the Pharisee is talking about what he doesn't do and what he does do, and he's praying out loud as if he knows God personally like that. The tax collector, he's not looking at anybody. He's not looking up. He's looking down, and he's beating his breast saying, have mercy on me, the same prayer that David uttered. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me. See, the, the, the tax collector knows that he has failed at the righteousness of God. The Pharisee felt like he was right with God. The tax collector knows he's not right with God. He has failed at being righteous before God. And so he's beating his breath. In fact, he says, have mercy on me. That word for mercy is propitiation. It means, it means he wants the wrath of God appeased so that he might be brought in through forgiveness. It's this reconciling moment where, where wrath is appeased. He doesn't bear the wrath. Someone else bears the wrath. And it opens the door for him to be received by God. So you see that he is humbling himself. But this is not a work of his. He doesn't work to this. What the tax collector does, and this is the grace of God, he has a true appraisal of who he is. He hasn't prouded himself up. He's not the blowfish. He's not extending himself beyond what he really is. He sees that he's a sinner. He sees that he's a broken man. And he repents before God and says, have mercy on me. That's all he can claim. He says, what have I received that I haven't, or what do I have that I haven't received? So, so let me just stop here for a minute. This is really the mark of Christianity here, that, that everyone who is to ever become a Christian has to go through this door. This is a door, this is a gate where you humble yourself before God and you finally say, I don't have rightness to approach you. I need help, I need mercy. I don't have it. I have failed before you. Have you done that? Have you confessed to God, not just the sins that you've committed in your past, but have you confessed to God that if he gave you 10 lifetimes, you could not be right enough so that God will look upon you and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Can you you say that you've done that? You know, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, when Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, And he begins with the Beatitudes, and he's beginning with Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that sermon, which is kind of the etiquette of the kingdom. This is the way those in the kingdom live. The gate, 
to that kingdom is Matthew, Matthew 5, 3, which is blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That poverty in spirit isn't a matter of wealth. Poverty in spirit is I realize that spiritually speaking before God, I got nothing. I got nothing but sin for you. That's all I got, and I'll bring it to you. I'll bring every bit of it to you. I am completely in poverty in my spirit. So that's the first thing we do. We humble ourselves. And for the Christian, we continue to humble ourselves. The second thing I would suggest as a Christian is we confess our sins. We confess our sins regularly. Why am I doing this? You know, as a Catholic, I used to go to confession once a year. You had to go, I think, if I remember right, so that you could go to communion. Um, but it, it was an act. It was just an act. I didn't realize the importance of confessing our sins. It's a reminder to us of our need for the gospel. This isn't a dark time for me. When I look in my relationships, how am I doing with God? How am I doing with my wife? How am I doing with my family? Things come up, and I want to confess them to God. I don't want to confess generally. I don't want to say, well, Gal was a really bad guy yesterday. You know, that, that's, that's no good. I want to be specific. God, would you forgive my absolute self-love when I sat on my rear end instead of helping Carol do whatever she did? You know, the, the specific confession of sin. The reason I do it is because it's garbage in my life that I want out of my life. And I confess my sins, and guess what comes in? Forgiveness and mercy and a re-enjoyment of God. So, so confess your sins. Many Christians only confess their sins once when they become Christian, and it's as if they only do it now and the big ones later. I would encourage a regular practice of that, and it will humble you because you'll find yourself confessing the same sins repeatedly. And you, God, you've got to help me. You've got to help me. It humbles you. Okay, thirdly, that you would behold God, that you would spend time from your busy schedules thinking about the glory and the power and the majesty and the beauty of God, all that God is. You know, to break this gravitational pull of self-word direction, we love to look at ourselves, we love to think of ourselves. So here's the next test. When you get a picture, next time someone says, hey, there's a, I saw a picture with you in it. When you look at the picture, who is the first person that you look at? You. We always do. We look at ourselves. And so how do we br break that gravity? Well, you need something more beautiful. You need something more lovely. You need something more majestic to look at, and that's God. Spend time thinking about it. That's what Paul says, at least in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, and we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Spirit of God will take your beholding the Lord, and he'll begin to humble you and fashion you back into the image of Christ. And then I'd say, fourthly, keep yourself under the cross. I mean, remind yourself, we sang the song about the cross, how, how there is no boasting before the cross. See, the cross is not an indication of how good you are or how valuable you are to God. No, the cross is an indictment of who we are. The cross reminds us that though we may perceive ourselves as, I'm a pretty good person, the cross is a big no to that. No. The cross is God's view of what your pride is. He crushes his own son for our pride. You know, when you think about the cross, it clears up our vision about ourselves and the little picadillos that we, that are sins. We just say, oh, they're little picadillos. They're just little, yeah, the little mistakes we've made. And it shows us this is what God thinks about it. Now, I want to remind you that... Um, you know, many theological liberals 
will say that Jesus is, he's a sweet guy. He's like a Christian Gandhi is what he is. He's nice, he's affirming, he's kind. He, he wants to bring people together. He's like a community organizer is what he is, right? And yet, why then did they crucify him? I mean, if he was such a nice guy, if he was just a pleasant guy, why would they, they crucified him because he told them, you aren't enough. That's what bothered the Pharisees. Repent and be baptized to a bunch of Pharisees who had already been circumcised and knew the law. Now, we all have to keep ourselves under the cross. It brings a degree of humility to us. It reminds us of our need. This is what was needed to save me. And we say the ground of the cross is level. It makes us all the same. It brings humility to us. Okay, let me give you a, a few freebies here to help you if these four haven't helped. Uh, number, number five, I would say, to develop humility, consider the brevity of your life. Listen, every person in this room is not self-existent. You are not self-existent. You didn't determine the place and the time of your birth. You won't determine the place and timing of your death. Only God is absolute. You are a mist and you are a vapor. You are here and you are gone. That is the reality. You know, I was thinking about this, so I was talking to Carol. In 20, if I die today, in 25 years, some of you will remember me and maybe some of the work that I've done. In 50 years, it'll probably be just my children. 75 years, I'll just be a name on a genealogy. That's all I'll be. Now, work done for the glory of God of course will last, but I'm trying to help you humble yourself by recognizing that this life is brief. It's momentary. Nick shared with me a, a quote that he had seen, um, or at least uh, experienced, from the life of uh, Dwight Eisenhower, the famous general and, and two-time president. And he kept this, uh, Eisenhower kept this poem with him, and he would periodically pull it out to read it, to humble himself. He says, he says this, it's, it's an anonymous poem. Take a bucket, fill it with water, put your hand in, clear up to the rest. Now pull it out, the hole that remains is a measure of how much you'll be missed. I mean, it's quick, it's quick. And the older you are, the, the more you know that. So remind yourself of the brevity of life. It humbles you. You know, I think it was Charles de Gaulle that was, it was attributed to him at least that cemeteries are filled with indispensable men. I keep reminding myself of that. They were all indispensable, and yet they're all six feet under right now. Okay, I would also say this. Um, another way to cultivate, uh, to kill pride and to cultivate humility is um, encourage people verbally. I, every day, make it your practice to say something of the grace of God in another person's life and do it in front of others so that they would see you are seeing God's grace in another person's life. It might be your wife, it might be a friend, it might be in the office, it might be at church. But something that you see of God in another person, highlight it, give word to it, and make sure that other people hear it. Why do I say that? Because I want to worship God, and identifying God's grace as he transformed the life of his saints is an act of worship. So do that. It also humbles you when you're, when you're promoting other people, not seeking to promote yourself. I would also say, yet another way of killing pride is go out at night and look at the stars. To the naked eye, you can see 3,000 stars approximately. But there are billions of stars. His creation is so extensive and so far, you can't help but feel small when you look at his creation. I'm not wanting you to tear yourself down. I want to correct appraisal as to who we are. We're flesh and we're blood. We're here today, we're gone tomorrow. 
And then the last thing I would say, if none of these work and you need to be humbled, then you can ask your children how smart that they think you are. And that is sure to humble you. Or uh, if you came into this service and after hearing the sermon and you're thinking this is a good sermon for somebody else, you really need to be humbled. I'll just say that. So, so you've heard the manifestations of pride, right? The manifestations of pride are, they are plentiful. The essence of it is we want to be like God. Let's call it for what it is. And the way to kill it are too numerous to repeat to you. So be engaged in the battle. Let's take a minute now. And, and if you're not a Christian here, I, I would simply ask you to consider, you know, what do you do with pride? And, and who should we thank for all the, who should you thank for all the things that you have and all you've done? If you are a Christian here, then maybe it's a time of confession. Perhaps it's a time of thankfulness to God for all that he is to you. Maybe it's a time just to say, you know what, I haven't been grateful. I've been ungrateful son. And confess that, and then I'll close this in just a minute.